This podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Vital Smarts. From over 30 years of research, Vital Smarts has found two behaviours that arise when we're faced with a tough conversation. What you might find yourself doing is holding back, not knowing what to say until one day you explode. Vital Smarts will teach you the speak up skills to be able to talk to almost anyone about almost anything. So visit vitalsmarts.com.au forward slash DSTM for a special listener offer. Is it this hothouse of the AFL environment that actually increases someone's susceptibility to depression and anxiety? Some clubs are now asking, what out do we have here? Like, what do we do if a player suddenly has so much anxiety, has such bad mental health issues that he can't play? And for how long do we keep paying this player? It's a big problem for mm. the game. Russell Crowe plays Roger Ailes, and in fact, in this first episode, it is really creepy the way Roger Ailes is predatory with women in the most subtle and disturbing way. Everywhere last week there was wild court barramundi in the fish shops. Oh, my Lord. So Neither. wild court means what? Well, it's not farmed, I guess. I mean, it's caught in the wild. <laughs> I'm wild. You, I'm caught. You, I'm a barramundi. Vanity Fair last week asked the question, is Princess Beatrice becoming the next royal style icon? Oh, I wouldn't go that far, Vanity Fair, but... They did. Do you think they've been told, listen, you're all getting money from the public purse, lift? Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome everyone to episode 91 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corrie Perkin and I'm here with my dear friend Caroline Wilson. G'day Caro. G'day Corrie. How's it going back well, in the land of Oz? It's very cold and I'm just immersing myself in winter and football and fabulous winter food and I've just decided if you've got to come home from a beautiful trip, Melbourne is probably the best place, as I said last week, to come home to. It's been pretty lovely weather and uh, Parliament's back so and they all seem to be behaving themselves on week one. Uh, wouldn't, have been, wouldn't, wouldn't have been my top of mind highlight. But Hawthorne's yes. back, <laughs> Richmond, uh, yep. all things as yep. we know. Uh, housekeeping, Caro, and... No apologies on my part. I'm not sure whether you have any. I do. Anna from Why the Op Shops not is not happy with us. Anna. Anna um, got in touch after our first podcast back last week and felt we had completely buried the lead in our discussions about travelling through England. She can't believe we didn't mention the pom- Pom's love of hounds. Now, it is true that everywhere we went, there were dogs, including on the walking track and in pubs and in department stores and in restaurants. And even when Boris Johnson was facing his absolute nadir after the red wine on the sofa scandal, remember the protest was going to happen at a local dog show. That's and right. when he was trying to suck his way back into, suck up to the public again, he doesn't, they don't pose with babies in England, you pose with dogs. Remember we had that gorgeous little Westie on the front page of the day? Email, whatever so, it takes, Caro. She was disappointed we didn't mention that, or a beautiful dinner at Otto Lingi with your goddaughter, or the cheesy feet biscuits, which I'm taking total credit for. The Miss cheesy... Jane would be so jealous about these. So, Jane, the cheesy feet biscuits are actually in the shape of a baby's foot, which is slightly weird in itself, and they are like a 
cheese and almost paprika. There's some sort of pepper in there. They are the most delicious biscuits. We some found sort this of little... pepper. They were actually blow your mind. <laughs> we, they were <laughs> we found, very spicy. We found them in a little bakery, or Caro found them in a little bakery and bought one each for one of the mornings we were walking. And At the so... recommendation of your goddaughter, Alex Loder, she said, you've got to try this bakery. And we did. And it, we so we fell in love with the cheesy feet. So now we have to... Feets, Corey. Cheesy feet. 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 And we took, sheep, them on, we took them on walks as our little sustenance in the morning, even though they were very small. They were very reasonably priced. But sometimes if, you know, the walk was a bit, you know, up and down, a bit gruelling, there were cheesy crumbs, weren't there? So, Miss Jane, <laughs> have you got a little um, cookie cutter in the shape of a baby's foot? No, but I reckon we could get someone to fashion one. So any welders out there, any metal fabricators? <laughs> We want to go into the cheesy feet business. Carol, we had a really lovely message from the Miracle Mums campaign at the Royal Women's Hospital. Great to hear from our mate Sarah Bernard and all the team there. And they were thanking us and also thanking all our potties who came along and not on, and those also who didn't come along but gave to this really worthwhile cause back in May. And the Miracle Mums campaign raised $111,500 kicked off by our live podcast at the town hall. So well done to everybody who rallied behind that great cause. And um, what was the highlight that uh, it was mum's book, Oh for a French Wife, <laughs> which I still haven't managed to source, but I do have a good recipe this week. You've got an unbelievable new series that people have raved to me about. And um, speaking of BSF, um, the book I recommended last week after the party has gone off. It's gone off, Caro. I gather. Thanks and for the thanks for the heads up. Can I just tell everybody? Well, you lent it to me. There is no such thing as insider trading in on this show. I own a bookshop, as everybody knows. You would think my co-host would actually give me a few days' warning when she's going to say this book is unbelievable. Well, that I could get a few book. copies in. <laughs> you gave <laughs> it, it was to out me. of my library. It wasn't <laughs> off the shelves. And so anyway, uh, Verity Caravis has um, got in touch and said thank you for suggesting. She says it's great to have us back. Thanks for suggesting after the party. It's by Cressida Cooper. Her reading is a tad oh, limited. Cressida Connolly. Cressida Connolly. What? Oh, I'm getting my Cooper. Um, Artemis I'm Cooper. Thinking of Artemis off. Cooper. Cre- Cressida Artemis. Um, her readings are tad limited at the moment, um, as her eyesight is a bit dodgy. Side effect from an operation. But she actually managed to get an um, audio version of the book from Borrow Box, and she loved it. Um, now, Caro, we've had lots of lovely feedback. Thank you, everyone, who who showed enormous interest in our Cornwall walking adventures. I must say you've shown more interest than some of my family members. Hello, Charlie Spear, my love, <laughs> my lovely son-in-law, Big Charlie, who said the other night after the third shot, you know, we had one of those old-fashioned screen nights, but you can put it through your Apple TV. Oh, I wouldn't mm, yes, have inflicted anyway. my family with that What one. about the footy? <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was sort of the end of that. But uh, lots of um, joy about our photographs, particularly, Carol, the photos of the belted Galloways. And for those who don't know, a belted Galloway is a black cow with a big, wide, white stripe. So that received a bit of fun. And then a lovely uh, message on our Instagram account from M2362D. Welcome back. Great to hear your adventures. Love a walking holiday, and I did part of the Via Francigena. I think that's how you pronounce it in Italy a few years ago. Great fun getting lost in fields and villages. And she added, or he added, Corey, I heartily agree with you. Read the overuse of the phrase reaching out. Oh, yeah. I actually banded on 3AW last week as well. I was on with Dwayne Russell, no, not Dwayne Russell, Tom Morris. He said it twice. I said, Tom, that's enough. 
So next, you've noticed it as well. It's, in, it's creeping into our oh, language. We were talking about it one morning, one early morning in Cornwall. Remember you were reading some um, emails and someone had said it and you screeched. <laughs> I thought there was a spider in your bed or something, but no, it was a, um, a verbal spider, the old reaching out. No, it's a nightmare of a It comment. was, and we had a Facebook message from Amanda Pierce who said, deciding to soak my ragged nails in a concoction found on YouTube, which was going to take at least 30 minutes. So I tuned into your travel pod and completely lost track of the time. Oh, gosh, I hope, Amanda, your nails are still on and they didn't sort of peel off. Thanks, oh, girls, for not only, do my, make, not only do my nails look better, but you've inspired me to stop procrastinating about an overseas trip and just do it. Amanda, I couldn't agree more. Save your pennies and off you go. Just as a sideline, remember my beautiful French manicure? I did SNS for the first time, sort of another version oh, of Well, I was a bit worried you might lose your fingernails well, afterwards. one by one, they, I've had it, I had it taken off when I returned. One by one, every nail has broken. So I'm off the magnesium and on the special hair and nail um, vitamin tablets to try and improve them. Oh, anyway. It's part of the ageing process. First Car- world, Car- no, the- it's not. It's SNS. <laughs> it's not ageing, but it is a first world problem. July challenge. So how's your July challenge going? Well, I haven't had a drink, so oh. so it's going well. It's now more than a week, and um, I heard someone on the radio the other day saying dry July is not something that um, everyone should do. It's not always a good thing to go cold turkey. And the interview Why not? Because, you know, sometimes it's not good for your system. The withdrawals can be a bit horrific. I haven't had withdrawals. but You're not um, an alcoholic. But there was this doctor on the radio and he was saying, look, if you drink more than, you know, the standard requirement of two standard drinks a day and at least two alcohol-free days a week, and I'm thinking... <laughs> <laughs> we do have a problem. I'm thinking, but I had no, no, it's been fine. Although the first week we did footy classified when I started dry July and, you know, Hutchie often has grog free months and weeks and whatever. So I said, oh, I'm not having a glass of wine tonight. And um, all the girls who work on the show said, oh, we won't have one either. And then uh, Matthew Lloyd, does, he drinks once a year. Chris Judd said, actually, I'm not going to have, no, he wasn't there last week. Hutchie didn't have a drink. No one had a drink. And I said, so am I the only reason everyone drinks every week? <laughs> but happily this week they all started drinking again. And I did, did go home a bit early. Anyway, so... Um, Are you feeling better? Yeah. I don't... Uh, look, I, not I much. Mean, <laughs> I mean, no, no, I went to a dinner on Saturday night and I got through it. Um, as someone, my son, who's also doing it, said to me, after you get past the first drink everyone has... It's a breeze. Mm. It's only when you arrive somewhere and they offer lovely champagne. I think champagne you feel quite virtuous or... at 11pm when everybody's talking rubbish and you can just come in as the sensible one. Yeah, I don't know if there's... I don't know if it's... Or in my case, I just get bored with everyone's conversation and say, I'm going home. You're all boring drunks. Well, yeah, well, anyway... Although I must say it's been a few years since I've not had a drink well, at a party. Since you were having children, maybe? Probably. <laughs> Um, and um, and then they the doctor also said, and of course, when you're pregnant, you must never have a drink. I'm thinking, oh, I definitely had the old glass of wine when I was pregnant. Anyway, what about you? How's your challenge? Oh, oh, not very good. Well, look, in my defence, I forgot the first time, the first night. So I, I jumped into bed and you know how I always sort of look at my phone just to check on the yes. Instagram and check which book. Often it's work-related, you know, what's the Strand bookshop in New York posting at this time of night. And I was about halfway through my little session and I thought, oh, bloody hell, this is my July challenge. So I put the phone down thinking, oh, no one will notice. But, of course, on Instagram, you can actually see when your friends and your contacts 
are activating their phone. So I thought, oh, Carol will be looking at the My Bookshop account and she'll see that it was active 15 minutes ago. And oh, she'll Corrie, go, I'm not, I'm not your watchdog. <laughs> I, I'm supporting you. And but- then I've had also a, two nights. So I've fallen off the wagon three times and then I had two nights, including last night, and then one on the weekend where they're just, I don't know whether it's the jet lag or what it is, but still the sleeping is a major issue and tossing and turning at 3 p.m., 3 a.m. can't turn the light on because you know who will be awake if I'm reading. Turn, so pick I up d- your phone and turn the torch on your phone. I find that's really bad for your eyes. You said that last week, but I tried it. I'm not happy with that. Anyway, I did look at my. Uh, you look at your meterage or whatever it is, how many times you've used your Instagram. So it's definitely down on the previous week. So I can report in well, that that's I'm because doing better. you're not travelling. <laughs> I mean, oh, Corrie, I really lift, lift. One word. I'll try. But I did do something really terrific, although I don't think it matters much in the Facebook world. I deleted the Facebook app off my phone. So that was pretty good. Don't you think, Jane? See, Jane, you don't do Facebook, but Jane is nodding, going, that is a very admirable thing to do. So there you go. I'm proud of you, Corrie. Now, Caro, I'm interested in discussing today, first off, the AFL and this increasingly concerning depression issue, which a few years ago we all wondered how deep and how significant this issue was within the game itself and its organisation. And I think you and I just quietly off air might have said a couple of times, oh, it's because they're not getting a game or something, they've pulled the depression card. But we realise, of course, that this is a deeply serious problem. And it was great did, to did see Magic. Did we say that? We did. There was one player we did say that about a few years ago, I must say. I don't, yes, I think it's more than not getting a game, but, but yes, go but, on. Uh, but I was really thrilled to see Magic Daw was back after his, um, his just terrible 12-month period. He fell from the Balti Bridge, yeah. And it was great to see him playing in the the VFL and he had a pretty good game by all accounts, but more the joy within the community and particularly the North Melbourne Football Club. Everybody's so happy to see him back. He didn't. I've got to pick. He only played 20 minutes and he didn't look. I mean, he's clearly not ready to play senior football, but he made it back out onto the football field. That was the great thing. So is, is is, is it an increasing problem? Within the AFL community, this or or is it more that the player? I'm wondering whether it's the circumstances of the game and the pressure of being an elite athlete and all of the stuff that comes with that, or whether the chaps are feeling more inclined to speak publicly about it that it's a comfortable space now to go into and that they have some sort yeah. of community obligation. Look, it well, it's not a community obligation, but it's a community problem, and of course, football is a microcosm of life. So, what I mean if, by that is, they feel health, that they, they should speak out to encourage others in the community to speak well, out. Well, no, I think they no, I don't think they feel that. I think they, um, for many players, they just want to pull the shutters down and explain why they're not at the club or not dealing with things, and it's a way of getting privacy. Sometimes it helps to obviously speak up, and that has become a, a, a bit much bigger trend. I mean, my, so, so was that what motivated Dane Beams from Collingwood? I, I don't know. I, I thought that was strange because Dane Beams, obviously, he, the, the 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 story, the first thing that happened was that his form was way down. He he had several issues with mental health last year. He he recovered. He didn't cope at all well, understandably, with the death of his father and um, stood down from the captaincy up in Brisbane, then um, couldn't decide whether he was leaving or not. The story kept changing. He finally did leave. He got a trade to Collingwood. Hasn't been a good trade for Collingwood. He hasn't been playing well. He was on the verge of being dropped. Then it emerged that he had serious hip problems. So he was pretty much out for the year anyway. So it was interesting that he chose to then say, 
I'm not coping. I'm suffering severe mental health issues. Then he, you know, put on his social media that he's a broken man. So it became a page one story, which interested me. I mean, he didn't really, he wasn't required to do that because he wasn't going to play anyway. Maybe it was, um, Chris Judd suggested to me the other night that maybe he, he's not going to be at the club. So he wanted to make an explanation. Look, this is. But I think also don't it's not you, a story that... anymore when a player takes time out with a mental health issue. Whereas, you know, back in when I first wrote that story about Ken Hunter back in two, 1999, revealing his breakdown, you know, at the age of 30, when he was dropped for the first time, it was a massive story. It was a massive story. And, you know, that, that really fit, it, it took the monkey off Ken Hunter's back and he became an advocate to this day, a wonderful advocate for young men with mental health issues. And it is a massive community issue. It's not just a footy issue. But what is interesting to me is um, that the the contractual issues that are now going to be faced by clubs. Because, you know, if a player is injured or in concussion, for example, you continue to receive injury payments. But if you do a a massive, massive trade like um, uh, Western Bulldogs did with Tom Boyd, who they were paying on a long-term deal, a million dollars a year and three great grand final, one great year. But apart from that, you know, the deal was not working out. Tom Boyd has had a long battle with mental health and the pressures of the game. He's now walked away from the game and cut a deal with the Bulldogs. So they don't have to pay him all the money that he was meant to be receiving. But some clubs are now asking, what, what out do we have here? Mm-hmm. Like, what do we do if a player suddenly has so much anxiety or such, so- has such bad mental health issues that he can't play and for how long do we keep paying this player it's a it's a big problem for mm. the game and it sounds glib to be worrying about the contractual issues but it is a, there were so many players i mean three more in the past four weeks have pulled out of the game indefinitely sometimes it's a week sometimes it's a year uh, so i wonder then uh whether there's there's a sort of a formal structure that the the AFL introduces in terms of payments a payment scheme, as you say, what's your finite period of paying this, and and then how do you assess an individual to say you know yes this this person does have depression and uh, right, you know rightfully it's a highly sensitive gosh, it's really it's fraught with it? issues as a result the AFL are on the verge of appointing a mental health officer who is going to work at, That's the, a great idea. at HQ under Steve Hocking, the head of football, so under the old traditional Ian Collins, Alan Schwab, Andrew Dimitriou role. Um, he or she, I think, I don't know the name of the person, but it's about to be announced. I think they have an army background. They worked in one of the armed forces in Australia. Um, they have ploughed in conjunction with the players who've given up some of their money to... Um, I think funding every club started out at 50000 a year, I think, this year. Every club has got to spend that amount of money on whether it's an Indigenous welfare officer or whether it's um, an extra part-time psychologist. Some clubs, one club now has a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. but and the Sydney Swans for years have had a full-time psychiatrist, a psychologist working at the club. So it's not good enough just to have a player development manager who – they say is there for player welfare, but in fact ends up being an assistant coach. I mean, it, that's all changing. So the the commission, I think, the first meeting this year spent, I reckon they spent nearly two hours on the issues because they were they, they were worried that the Magic Door story saw the game, you know, one tragedy away 
from that story being one step worse mm. and a player falling to his death. Well, wasn't it interesting, Caro, to hear Wayne Schwoss, the former North Melbourne great, talking at the Royal Commission into Mental Health last week about his issues during the early 2000s. And he said, I grew up with this mentality that men are not meant to cry and show emotion. That narrative was magnified once I started to play football. And it really, I mean, I sort of celebrate his and, and applaud him for his courage and particularly appearing in front of the Royal Commission and, and highlighting what the situation was then and what it is now. Uh, but it just makes me wonder, is it, is it this hothouse of the, of, of the AFL? We know that the black dog is tragically everywhere throughout our community for people of all ages, but particularly also for young men. Is it this hothouse of the AFL environment that actually increases someone's susceptibility to depression and anxiety? I think social media has a huge role to play. And the fact that society is crueler now, social media is so much nastier because in the past there might have been a mean phone call, but now it's emails and Instagram and Facebook and abusive messages online all the time. And some players... And you might have just had a bad day, a bad game. You know, well, Travis Cloak had admitted that he knows he, sh- he knew he shouldn't read it, but he was addicted to social media. He, mm. he, he could not stop himself from reading all the nasty messages. So that is a massive issue. And, of course, you know, often it's aligned with drugs and alcohol. You know, one leads to the other. It's a chicken and the egg. What comes first? Many players who take time out with men- a mental health issue, be it anxiety or depression or... Or worse, you know, by or worse, they often have drug problems as well or alcohol problems because they self-medicate. And that's where it's a very difficult role for the media because it's so highly sensitive. And there are times you just want to write a story sometimes if a player is played up, but you're told, oh, no, he's got a mental health issue. Mm, and that, that does lead to it. I mean, Mark Robinson had the terrible situation where um, – I think it was Alex Fazzolo they announced was taking time out with a mental health issue. I think it was two or three years ago. And Mark Robinson put on his, um, I think on Twitter, um, when Fazzolo turned up at training the following week, mental health one week, training the next, must be good drugs or something along those lines. And Collingwood obviously came Mm. down very hard on him, as did the industry. And Mark apologised. But there are those sort of attitudes that sometimes, in some cases, I'm not saying in that case, there might be something to it. So fraught yeah. with issues, but clearly I, I personally think social media is a massive part of it. Well, it was. it's really interesting to see on the AFL website under their education section, they have mental health. So if anybody is interested in reading further on the AFL stand on this, some very good uh, words and advice in that section of the afl.com.au. And of course, Lifeline, Kids Helpline and Beyond Blue, all their contact details, if anybody needs to uh, delve any further, are available on the AFL website. Um, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Well, from the very important to the very um, silly, but not so silly, Caro, the next topic, the British royal family. <laughs> well, this, this began because I said to you, because I knew you'd have a view on this, whether it was fair on the public that Archie's christening was private because of all the money Harry and Meghan get and because of all the money that went into their wedding and because of all those fans who I saw interviewed on the news over the weekend who just felt it would have been nice to have a look at Archie's face finally before the christening or know a bit more about the christening. Well, they've now received via social media and newspapers and the internet lots of photographs of young Archie, who was a beautiful 
um, round-faced, chubby, lovely-looking baby, healthy as, and he was wearing the ancient old uh, royal christening robe. The photo- well, a, a remake of. Well, a remake. The a Queen, remake Vic- of. Queen Victoria's child's first christening yes, robe. Yes. Yeah. And, and it, the photograph of the family, the same chair that Diana sat when Harry was christened, um, there was a real nod to, in fact, Kate, uh, the Duchess of Cambridge, wore Diana's the same drop earrings that Diana wore on the day of Harry's christening as a nod to, the, to all of that. And her sisters were there. But it was interesting, Carol, having been spent a couple of days in London with um, Trude, uh, our friend Trudy, and we went to Kensington Palace and we saw a terrific exhibition there, actually, of the Victoria, Queen Victoria's childhood. But immersing yourself in that kind of British culture and so on, you realise how what a significant role of, I mean, this is not a new concept, but what a significant role the British royal family play in the economy of London in particular. And, and now the fashion industry and I, and I think I think the Sussexes are absolutely well within their right to make this a private affair. I don't think they have to go public. They wanted to manage it. When you consider what Harry and William have been through with the loss of their mother because of a paparazzi chase in a, in a Paris underground, uh, you know, freeway, really I think they're entitled to do whatever they want. But these happy snaps that have appeared were, uh, yes, they were stage managed and um, only one photographer was there, but a good thing, I think. Uh, they haven't released the identities of the godparents. Well, they that will come out eventually. Why does it have to all be now? But more interestingly, Caro, is there, there is an increasing... Uh, this story that the Queen is going to stand aside at the age of 95, which is in two years, is starting to gain a bit of credence. And there was another um, story in the paper last week where royal author Phil Dampier, not somebody I know terribly well, said that there's talk that when she reaches 95 in a couple of years, she may slow down and possibly the Regency Act will be brought in. That, of course, is the act which allows Prince Charles to take over all the sort of, the, you know, the main duties. But he um, won't become king until she dies. Won't become king, but will be the, the acting sovereign, as it were. And there, if you notice, uh, and I certainly did when we were in England with the papers and so on, there's an increasing number of events where the Prince Charles and, the, and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, are appearing at these things. Uh, and there are events that back in the day the Queen would have attended herself. There are more sightings of Prince Andrew and Prince Edward than I have seen in the last 25 years. A bit of a concern in my mind. <laughs> the Countess of Wessex, I don't know which one you mean. Um, the Countess of Wessex, Both. Prince Andrew's wife, Sophie, the Countess of Wessex, she's really... Prince Edward's wife. Oh, Prince yeah. Edward, sorry. Um, the, she, she is really hitting the charity hustings in a big way and, again, appearing at events the Queen would normally attend. It's the rise and rise of Wills and Kate... So they are really moving into that stratosphere, and Kate is, seems seems to be taking on a whole new kind of persona. Um, and what's interestingly, that? what's the persona she's taken on? Uh, more regal, more dignified. Even her hair, uh, the way she's dressing. She, there's a whole new look. If you compare Kate. Uh, I keep saying Kate Middleton, which is really inappropriate, but look, let's just call her Kate. Uh, if you look at photographs of her three and four years ago and now, it is a it is a much more evolved, and not just because she's matured, but it's a much more um, regal kind of... reminds me of um, when uh, Elizabeth Bowes Lyon married George the the sixth, the Queen who, Mother, yeah, the, who she became, yeah, the yeah. Duke of York. Um, she also went from country girl, Scottish girl. Within three or four years, she had really sort of transformed herself into more Queen than the Queen, really. And the other interesting thing, Carol, is Beatrice and Eugenie, the princesses, the daughters of Prince Andrew. They are really becoming a strong presence. And in fact, Vanity Fair last week asked the question: Is 
Princess Beatrix become Beatrice becoming the next royal style icon. Oh, I wouldn't go that far, Vanity Fair, but... They did. Do you think they've been told, listen, you're all getting money from the public purse, lift? Yes, I think so, and I think that's a very good thing. So I think, you know, the fa- I think the fact that that uh, the the Sussexes have had this money, public money spent on their on their new home, some of it was given to them by Prince Charles, uh, the fact that they have kept Archie's... Uh, christening private, I don't really care because I think they're all contributing to the bigger game here. And I think they are acting as a united force. I can't I can't see that there's a lot of um, anxiety. The only anxiety there, I think, is Prince Charles and Prince Andrew do not have a comfortable relationship. And Fergie now is firmly back in the fold. In fact, she was spotted at another event at Ascot last week. I don't know whether it was the opening day or the second day. She was there with Prince Andrew as his partner. But the other schism that was being written about while we were over there was the um, dissolution of um, the trust, the trust that Wills and Harry yes. ran together. And that and there was a lot of stuff about the two princesses not getting on. And now you would have kept a closer eye on this, and I know you're going to talk about Wimbledon in a moment, but did... Kate ever end up inviting Megan to Wimbledon in the Royal Box? Uh, no, no. Me- Megan went on her own, uh, mm. but they cited they cited the fact that she's still on maternity leave. The Royal Watcher I read said that will be the the telltale sign. That will be the the big significant that that will be the flag, the red flag if she's not invited by Kate to Wimbledon in the Royal Box as she was last year. Well, look, I. I think there's more symbolism actually in the group photograph of uh, the official portrait of the royal family at Archie's christening. Oh, Corrie, it's not like she couldn't be asked to that. No, no, but she could have been on the other side of the chair, but instead she sat next to Megan. Yes, all right. And Diana's sisters, two sisters, Jane and Sarah, were behind them. I think that was really significant because it would have been ever so easy to move that around, although you couldn't probably have had Camilla sitting near Sarah and Jane. That would have been a bit difficult. (laughs) Uh, Not my problem. Your dinner party nightmare. (laughs) Well, to be continued. Anyway, I just think it's really interesting, and I think we should watch Queen with uh, with great focus because uh, the the House of Windsor is in, in a state of transition, Caro. Now, Corrie, you have... Which I know a, it's just so fascinating to you. <laughs> you have a crush of the week, and it is with a heavy heart today oh, that you reveal it. it is. It is. Uh, my crush of the week is Ash Barty, Caro. Uh, how could you not love her, even though uh, this week she was defeated in the fourth round by a, a really talented Alison Risk, or is it, is it Alison Risque? I'm Risk. not sure. Risk. Yes. I didn't she get to... She won the first set too. I know. Oh, she, she was, was, play, she was playing really well. And I just, you know, again, tiredness. I couldn't watch the rest of the match. I saw the first set and thought she has it in the bag. But anyway, I decided a, a week ago that I wanted to talk about about Ash Barty because I think she is a re- she's a class act, Caro. She, and everybody keeps saying that, almost to the point where it sounds a bit... De- um, you know, it's, it was deprecating, but I really think that she is. Uh, she's got a very uh, clear vision of the kind of tennis player she wants yep. to be. She's really perfecting her public uh, persona, and I love the fact that every time she talks about the team or, or Ash Barty, how she herself played, she says "we" and she acknowledges her team at every point she can. So, despite her Wimbledon campaign, you know. Starting with Serena Williams' reaction to the fact that Ash Barty was number one in the, at the, at the which was completely made up, as if she didn't know. And I'm despite, just so despite sorry Channel we didn't 7, get that game. Oh, and Channel Seven opting to televise Nick Kyrgios instead of Barty's match, and despite poor Ash having to play her important second round match on court two instead of instead of centre court one, where normally number one. 
number one seeded players would be usually seen. Uh, and and despite the efforts of journalists to really get her talking about the form of Nick Kyrgios and Bernard Tomic, she's just resisted all that. She's remained quiet, serene, focused. I love her and I can't wait to see where this journey goes. Well, there was very sad faces um, the morning after her defeat at our favourite coffee shop where I buy our coffee, Corrie, because she drinks her coffee there, Ashbardi, during oh, the she? Australian Open. And they've got a big poster of her up on the wall. Is and this they, at Albert's place? That's it. Oh. That's it. So they were sad. Brendan and I actually sat with her at um, an AFL final a couple of years ago because her man, her manager, Nikki she Craig. She barracks for Richmond, doesn't she's she? She's a tiger. Yeah. And her manager, Nikki Craig, is a friend of ours and, in fact, was Rose's first rowing coach. And um, so we sort of – I reminded Brendan of this um, after she won the French Open, which we watched in an airport, which was so exciting. And um, – he just didn't have any recollection of it because she is such a humble, um, not put herself forward sort of girl. I mean, th- th- there's something very not inconsequential, but she's just not someone who has a huge ego. I mean, everyone has That's an right. ego. But Carol, I reckon what sums it up is in September last year, after the U.S. Open, they have this thing where they award um, U.S. sportsmanship awards, U.S. Open sportsmanship awards. She was awarded. It, she was awarded the uh, Women's 2018 U.S. Open Sportsmanship Award, which is just a fantastic award because it's given to the person who demonstrates excellence in sportsmanship throughout the tournament, not just in one match, but throughout the tournament in their public and dressing room behaviour, on court, off court. And she received this. And I think that is very telling, the fact that her peers and tournament organisers recognised what a good person she is. I love her, love her, love her. But there's somebody in Australian tennis you are not so in love with. Oh, well, look, it's pretty obvious. And I'm not going to – I've talked enough about Which is the opposite Nick Curios on, on Don't Shoot the Messenger and everywhere else. But um, she has saved Australia's international sporting reputation at the moment because Nick Curios, Curios is just so damaging, I think, our uh, international reputation. I'm embarrassed that he's – I know he's not representing Australia. He's an individual. But I wish tennis authorities had the guts to stand up to someone who built balls into his opponent's stomachs, who is condescending and stupid to journalists. Now, I know he's but how, not – But how can how be the responsibility of the tennis authorities to change someone's personality? Well, I, I think you shouldn't be allowed to serve underarm. You shouldn't be allowed to belt someone in the stomach deliberately, deliberately with a tennis ball. You shouldn't keep abusing the umpire or ball boys. You should, you know what? You should just get kicked out. They should have the guts to suspend him. As they've, I mean, they've obviously fined that dreadful Bernard Tomic, and he's on the way out now. And he he also had the talent to be something great. But you know, Curios keeps saying how good he is and how he's just not prepared to try hard to be a, a Grand Slam champion. He's not that good. He might have the ability, but he's never been that good. He's never even made a Grand Slam final. So out with him. Absolutely oh, loathe him. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> but that's not what <laughs> I, I'm grumpy about, Corrie. About. Yeah, what, well, if you're not grumpy, well, what are you grumpy about? I well, can't I'm, wait to hear this one. I'm grumpy that Ash Barty lost, actually. No, this is such a first world problem and such a tiny thing, but it, it comes up in my life so frequently, packaging of items. The most, the ridiculous packaging. I don't think that's such a first world problem. When we when we go and buy new moisturiser, whether it's a twenty dollar moisturiser or a seventy five, eighty, a hundred dollar moisturiser, why is why do you have to get through? Why do you need a science degree to open it? Why do you need knives and scissors to open a four pack of tonic water, low cal tonic water, a lot of which I'm drinking at the moment? 
the worst one at the moment, and it happened the other day, washing powder. I, I get a knot in my stomach when I have to open a new OMO or drive or whatever it is. You know when you you tear the cardboard bit around the front? And it never works. It, it always nev- comes out Well, either done. it never works, and if another family member does it, you've got to deal with that for the next sort of three weeks or four weeks because, you know, it never... It never quite shuts properly. Gosh, your life is tough, tough. But when you when you pull it around and it does work, all the washing powder spills out onto the floor or all over your hands, and it's disgusting. Or all over your basin, or all over the top of your washing machine. Why don't they package it properly so it doesn't all spill out do when you, remember, you open it? Do you remember there used to be they used to have a little steel funnel? That pourer that came out funnel. of the side. What happened and to that the idea? The steel funnel was, and now you've got that stupid little candle cup thing, you know, that which we're always thing, spilling grains out of. Which you need to get out your microscope or magnifying glass to find it. Often so it's your gone issue, to the bottom so your grumpiness, your grumpiness is not so much about the amount of packaging in the world, which there is way too much, but the fact that some packaging just doesn't work. It doesn't work and it takes far too long and it makes everybody tense and it's also ecologically unsound. So as you know, On every level, it's wrong. As you know, Caro, at the bookshop, we design our own greeting cards. We have a range. There are about 15 in the, in the range and our lovely artist friend, Robin Coucher, does them. And we don't sell them in any cellophane, right? Because I just think that's excessive packaging. It's ridiculous. And also, can I tell you, if we were going to cellophane, it would cost another 50 cents, which we have to then pass on to the consumer. So we sell these beautiful cards by an Australian artist for $4.95. We hide the envelopes underneath the counter so they stay tidy and we just sell the card and when it, and all our gang know, buy the card and Corey or whoever will give you the envelope. Well, a lady came in a couple of, or it must have been before I went away, and she was really antsy that she said, well, doesn't the envelope get dirty? It gets crushed. I said, well, no, it doesn't. Well, what about when it's in my bag? Well, I can put it in a paper bag for you. She was indignant that this, this thing wasn't wrapped to within an inch of its life. Even when I said that's how we were able to keep the cost down as opposed to other greeting cards. She's being ridiculous. Well, I'll send her your way. <laughs> BSF, Caro, books, screen and food. And this segment is brought to us by our friends at Vital Smarts. Are you feeling bullied or harassed by other people? Nick Curios, are you? Are you lacking the ability to confront the situation safely? Developing your crucial conversation skills will give you the tools to talk when the stakes are high, giving you the confidence to speak up in even the toughest situations. Learn how Vital Smarts has helped organisations shift behaviours, change cultures and improve performance by visiting vitalsmarts.com.au. Uh, slash DSTM, which of course is Don't Shoot the Messenger. You have a book, Caro. I've discovered a new author, Corrie, and her name is Pamela Hansford Johnson. She's a fascinating story in her own right. She was born in London in 1912. She died, I think she was 69 or 70 um, in the early 80s. She had an early relationship of some sort. She denied it was sexual with Dylan Thomas, um, and she became a wonderful novelist. In fact, um, the book I have just read, which I bought in London, is called The Last Resort. On the front, it receives a ringing endorsement from one of my favourite authors of all time, A.S. Byatt, calling her a remarkable craftswoman. It's basically a story of a, the, the narrator is a writer by the name of Christine and looking over her backlog, there seem to, Christine seems to feature in a lot of stories. She has a history of her own. She arrives in, on the south coast of England in a funny old hotel in, I think it must be sort of the late um, 
the, the, it's, it's, I think it's post-war. It's around the 40s anyway. And it's a comedy, not a comedy of manners. It's a story of two, a friendship of two women, the second woman, a rather eccentric woman and her family, and this group of friends and what happens when, an, well, not an unexpected death, a death sort of shifts the dynamics of the relationships. This woman is having an affair with a married man. I won't go into the details, but it is a wonderful story of English society over the 30s, 40s and 50s. You're in your comfort zone there. It's, oh, well, it's sort of, but it's quite racy. It's, it, there's sexuality in it. And I look back and her first novel. So what year did she write it? Uh, this one is written in 1956. Oh. Actually, it might be the 50s. But her first novel, which was set pre-war, is called This Bed, Thy Centre. And it's about a teenager discovering her sexuality in England in the 1930s or 40s. And it was banned in some parts of England. It Pammy, is, racy. It is the most wonderful story of relationships. It. A lot happens and not a lot happens. It's wonderfully descriptive of the English countryside and also of London during the 1950s. But Pamela Hansford-Johnson, after this early relationship with Dylan Thomas, married an Australian journalist, actually, and that she had children with Gordon Neil Stewart, who ended up going back and living in Bathurst where he died. Um, but they had two children. She then ended up marrying the famous novelist C.P. Snow, mm. and they became a great literary powerhouse in London over the 60s, 70s and 80s. Anyway, I would recommend this book. I'm now dying to find her next one, The Last Resort. The well, Last Resort is refers to... Um, on many levels, what it might be. Yeah, it, on many levels. But um, there's a homosexual theme through it all as well, which is fascinating because it's written through the prism of the 50s and incredibly modern in its views. So, Caro, thankfully, Insider Trading is alive and well this week on Don't Shoot the Messenger because you did text me that you were going to talk about Pamela's book. So I promptly went to our supplier to see if I could get a couple in just in case there's an avalanche of inquiries. So if anybody would like a copy of this hard-to-find book, just, I suppose you could email me, Corey at mybookshop.net.au, and we will pop one aside for you. She's obviously back in town because the, she was, you know... How interesting. What made the, you pick it up? Um, the the woman in this wonderful Chelsea bookshop, John, John Sando Books, um, he, she just said, you have to... This is a lovely one. And then she thrust Pat Barker's new book um, about, was it The Silence yes. of the Women? or yes. the, Yeah, which ha- looks absolutely brilliant as well. That's going to be the next one on my list. Oh, how interesting is that? Corrie, um, you've got a screen and I'm dying to hear about this. I have. So it went to air last week, the first episode in a new Showtime series called The Loudest Voice. It stars Russell Crowe. He has... Uh, fa- so it's on Foxtel? Yes. Oh, he, brilliant. Well, no, well, it, well I've, I've got it through Stan. But oh, it's okay. show, Showtime has made it, so I think you can only get it through Stan. Okay. But hey, what do I know about where one can seek uh, things on television? Anyway, uh, first episode, the second episode went to air early this week. I haven't had a chance to catch up with it, but the first episode is compelling. Russell Crowe has put on the fat suit. Ha- he, apparently the makeup took three or four hours a day to really fatten himself up to look like Roger Ailes, who is no longer with us, died a couple of years ago, but he was... Rupert Murdoch's man of choice to set up Fox News, the Fox News Network. And he was the one who um, Roger Ailes identified that there was no conservative voice in the media, in the American media. It was all kind of smaller liberal, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN. But who was fighting for, you know, what he called middle America? The dumbing down of the news and people uh, responding sometimes to untruths 
where they became a story in themselves and then they suddenly somehow became the truth. And we can see all of this as the setting for what became the Donald Trump phenomenon and now his incredibly peculiar uh, and reliant relationship on Fox News. Russell Crowe plays Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes was a haemophiliac and he died of head injury in 2017, but this was a year after he was forced to resign from Fox following a number of sexual harassment allegations. And in fact, in this first episode, it is really creepy the way Roger Ailes is predatory with women in the most subtle and disturbing way. And Carol I can honestly say that I sat there, I thought of you and me and the early days in newsrooms where just occasionally a male colleague would ever so slightly cross the, what we would say now is the line. Yep. And all of a sudden that uncomfortableness that young reporters feel because we want to get on in the job, we want to keep our job, we're quite ambitious and you just don't know back in the 70s and 80s how to say no. Um, Russell Crowe, in fact, in an interview with Vanity Fair said he found these scenes incredibly uncomfortable to film and he completely understands why women have come out in the post-Harvey Weinstein era to say uh, hashtag me too. Anyway, it's a great show. Uh, Sienna Miller plays uh, Roger Ailes' wife. Uh, Naomi Watts is also in the cast, and I thoroughly recommend it. It's oh, called The Loudest Voice. I'm really looking forward to seeing that, and I will try and work out how to get Stan. Speaking of Rupert Murdoch's empire, did you see that Heather Mills finally received a massive apology, Paul McCartney's ex-wife? And I think they set aside 14 and a half million pounds to settle all these cases. Um, the phone hacking scandal, News of the World, you know, it was a shocking story a few years ago. But she received it overnight, massive apology. Don't know how much money she got, but I'm told seven figures in pounds sterling. Elton John was another one. Quite a few celebrities who thought they were going insane, who started blaming their partners, their families, their friends for revealing information about them, th- sending them almost insane it was, in fact, news of the world that was hacking into their phones. And for Heather Mills, it went on after she divorced Paul McCartney. Just an utter And, and whatever happened to Rebecca, what's her name? Did she ever serve a prison sentence? No. They gave her Did a job back. Did she get a promotion? Back. Yes. They gave her her job back. Yes, and I hopefully... know. Now, Caro, BSF finishes, of course, with food and you have a recipe. Yeah. Um, Not this... cheesy feet. No. And it's sort of... It's sort of a made-up recipe, but it's really easy. So I'll just quickly say that with our love of all things pescatarian at the moment, Corrie, um, I noticed everywhere last week there was wild-caught barramundi in the fish shops. Oh, really? Oh, my Lord. There's some right near your bookshop too, which is where I bought it. Um, it's not cheap, but then neither... So wild-caught means what? Well, it's not farmed, I guess. I mean, it's caught in the wild. <laughs> The fish in the wilds of the caught by ye old local ye old fishermen in the wilds of Queensland or WA. I don't know. It's wild caught barramundi. Anyway, again, dare I say, Jane, don't shoot the messenger, Carol. I'm just it. asking the question. Potties out there are wondering the same thing. Well, it's not commercially <laughs> fished, I guess. Anyway, I guess. Anyway, so. <laughs> You buy it with the skin on. I'm wild. You, I'm caught. You, I'm a barramundi. And you, you you buy it with the skin on. I love good barramundi. And you don't do anything to it except sprinkle it with a bit of sea salt. You turn on the fry pan with a bit of spray oil or a mixture of oil and butter. Sorry, or a bit of what? Spray oil. You know, like if you don't want to do heaps of olive oil, just, you know, don't you ever use spray oil? No. 
Haven't you ever used that? Well, I drizzle. I don't spray my oil. Oh, no, you can buy it, – it's quite – it's good anyway. But you can use a mixture of oil and butter or clarified butter. I spray butter when I'm doing the ironing, time. but I don't spray the oil. Well, everyone listening will know that you can use oh, spray right. oil. Anyway, you know how you've got to get the skin really crispy? Yes, it's a so problem with fish. Turn it on really hot. Get out your spatula and stand there for 30 seconds to a minute. I know you lack patience, as we found out during your sponge cake experiment, but you have to stand there. Don't move. Have your cup of tea next to you or your glass of wine and press down the spatula for at least 30 seconds and preferably a minute. Can I just butt in at this point? On MasterChef the other night, one of the very talented young ones cut off the filler, cut off the skin and cooked that first and then rearranged it back on top of the fish. In fact, I think it might have been a barramundi. Which people do with pork I don't know whether it was wild caught or it was in a farm. Well, well, it works this way because then it's sort of half cooked anyway. Then you turn it over and cook it on the – you leave it for at least another – minute or two. I mean, I reckon three minutes on the skin side, at least a minute of that pressed down as you're standing there. Then you turn it over. If you're not sure it's quite cooked, put it into a warm oven while you're doing the rest of your meal. But it is on its own the most beautiful piece of fish. But what you serve it on, what I served it on was the world's best mash, which was a mixture of potatoes, celeriac, 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 and white sweet potato. You know, the sweet potato that's got the purple skin, not the orange skin. So you peel up your potato and your sweet potato, chop it all up and boil it and then mash it. And then you add, cook separately because it cooks a bit quicker or it did for me, the celeriac, which you peel and you put straight into water and you boil that up as well. Once they're all soft to the touch, drain them all. Butter, milk. I didn't use cream. I just used butter. Where did you get the recipe for the um, mash? Um, years ago, years ago in the eighties, living in England, um, I went to this great dinner once, and the woman who was a, a we we're in the county, so I think we we're in Sussex. We had this incredible Sunday lunch, and the mashed potato had celeriac in it. What a great idea! It's beautiful. It is beautiful. Lots of salt and pepper, or lots of salt anyway. Lots of butter and a bit of milk. Mash, mash, mash. Puree, puree. I use one of those wizard things, you know, that you plunge into soup. Mm. What are they called? Like a not a bar mix. Anyway, yeah. you know what I mean, because I like it really pureed. Plonk that on your plate. Put the barry, barramundi on the top. I served it with Brussels sprouts and a green salad, but you just need a green salad. Absolutely beautiful. Mm, I'll be over tomorrow night for that one. Thanks. So that was BSF, Corrie, thanks to Vital Smarts, globally proven crucial conversations. Hold tough conversations well, and there are links to Vital Smarts in our show notes. Okay, so now tough conversations with our six quick, six quick questions, Caro. So my question to you, what's your latest nanny state observation? Well, I've got two now because Chris Judd told me yesterday or the day before that um, they've banned footy cards in schools because of the... Oh, <laughs> what? Well, because people are doing mean things and, you know, to unsuspecting younger kids, swapping a really you know, um, bad one for a good one. Remember Blue Boy that's and Pink of, Lady when yeah, we had swap cards yeah, at school? That's part, that's part of life. <laughs> People who are not our age will not remember no, that. No, uh, God, I spent hours with my swap but card collection. But, even, Cara, that's part of life. Like if you swap, you know, you suddenly go, oh, I got the dud play, that was a dumb yeah. swap. That's a lesson in life. Parents can intervene if it's a really bad card. But the other one, the worst one is uh, one of our favourite coastal general store slash milk bars slash coffee shops where we all used to sit outside on the grass near the beach and drink our coffee. In Guess our what? bathers or our towels. Not, allowed, or our not allowed to sit outside the coffee shop on the grass anymore. Why not? Because 
you can't have food or drink in a china cup out there. If you buy a takeaway coffee, you can sit outside. Remember they used to put out oh, bean bollocks. bags and why chairs. Can't, why and can't you sit there with your cup of If you do, you have china to pay cup. a council stipend, the, or, the, or the coffee shop does. Have oh, you ever mental. heard anything so ridiculous in your life? That's mental. Anyway, that's my lady. Are they worried that the china cup's going to break and people will cut their bare feet? Oh, I don't, maybe, the, maybe the skin divers have complained. I don't oh know. It's absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, I think we need to keep an eye on the nanny state. After our great experiences in the UK and, you know, scaling the cliffs of um, Cornwall. With no with, fences. Without a fence to be Because seen. they trust people to actually be quite smart and not slip off. Walking up to belted galloways and patting them, or in Trudy's case, um, I think that we need to... People need to take more care of themselves. Oh, Keep an eye gracious. on that. Now, Corey, what's your number one take-home after you read Nikki Sava's new book on the coup against Malcolm Turnbull? I'm only halfway through it. I'm enjoying it hugely, I have to say. My take on it is this. Well, apart from the fact that Matthias Cormann has a lot to answer for, we may lament the fact that newspapers are a shadow of their former selves and we may get really concerned about where is good investigative journalism, where's its home these days. But can I tell you that the hero of this story or the heroes are organisations like uh, Henry Rosenblum's Scribe Publications, which have published this book, or Maury Schwartz's Black Ink, which does the quarterly essay, or MUP, certainly under Louise Adler's tenureship, or QUP, which also does amazing work as well. What these book publishing companies and these courageous publishers are doing is saying to the journalists, look, you know, you no longer have the forum. Let us provide the forum, either as a quarterly essay or a book or whatever. So Nikki Sava, the day after Turnbull was rolled, as she said in an interview last week, she was so obsessed about this story. She started interviewing everybody on the Saturday. It happened on the Friday. On the Saturday, she was interviewing and taking notes because she knew somewhere, somehow, she had to get this story out. It ended up being a book and a book deal. And the book is called Plots and Prayers by Nikki Sava, and I highly recommend it. I, honestly, last night, Carol, I could not put it down. And our event that we're having at the bookshop, which your husband, Brendan, very kindly is going to be the moderator, it was all booked out within two hours. So thanks, oh. Potties, for all your Support. It got a little bit testy last time you had Nikki in the shop, didn't it? She yeah. wrote the book about the relationship between Abbott she did and Kremlin. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Road to ruin. Uh, well, she's she's just great. She says she says it like it is. And what I love about our bookshop events is that people feel really that they it's Chatham House rules. They can say what they like, and they they're never afraid to take on the the author. So it's good. Caro, where do you stand on injecting rooms and this rather difficult issue? Well, I think we've got to keep them. I think I think the numbers are suggesting that it is improving the health of drug addicts. It is it is a safe solution. I know the people of Richmond, for example, um, the Melbourne inner suburb, are very very angry about this and talk about ice addicts running round around the suburb. But injecting rooms are largely for heroin addicts, and heroin is not a violent drug. Um, I've got kids who, who live in that area, and they see junkies around a lot, and they. They see them as largely passive and really not dangerous people at all. And I know it's difficult and I, I can see there's huge conjecture about it being near a school, but you can't just dump it in some sort of um, uh, sub outer suburban wasteland where nobody's going to go. 
and I think the government have been really firm on this, and I know it's a massive issue, and I know it became a big election issue in the last state and election. And it's a community issue. But I just think that in the end, it's it, the numbers are improving as a result mm. of injection rooms. So I think we've got to keep them. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Now, of all the Australian politicians who've had a regular media gig, who's your number one, BOG? Well, you'll be saying Julie Bishop, I would imagine. I'd tip this. She's, she's unplugged her own put forward an idea for her own Tonight Show. Yeah, but it hasn't been accepted yet. No, but so I... you haven't tipped it. I said we'll She'll see She'll have her. her own show, but yeah. she hasn't got it yet, so well, you haven't officially got the tip. Anyway... Well, let's wait and, and see. Until, until uh, Julie, who, I, again, in this Nikki Sava book, I feel so sad for her, the way she was knifed by her male colleagues. Uh, my favourite is Amanda Vanstone on Radio National and her Counterpoint program, which she has been doing since 2013. Now, as we know, Caro, Amanda is a former minister in the Howard government, and she has a conservative view of the world. She is a highly intelligent, well-travelled, compassionate, sensitive but and, and a hard hitter with her interviewers. She she is the complete package to me. And in fact, when we came back from our Cornish walk, there are a couple of local podcasts I couldn't wait to download and get onto and, and catch up with. And Amanda Vanstone was number one. I really highly recommend Counterpoint. And I think she has just morphed into a terrific media star. Well done, Mandy. And she's a big Port Adelaide fan. In fact, I think she's still on the board. Is she? Mm. Well, that's another reason we love her. Now, Caro, Tom Hanks, I can't believe this. He turned 63 this week. Really? I can't believe he's not 73. Oh, <laughs> stop been it. around forever. Stop it. Doesn't I, that make I you feel old? That. What no. do you mean? You dispute what? I reckon. Well, date birth. Well, he's obviously older than us, and I reckon. God, you'll take on anything. Google it, Dal. No, he's 63 this week, unless my sums are wrong. What's your favourite Tom Hanks movie? Well, you know, we love The Post, where he played Ben Bradley. Bradley. And I love that film about um, international diplomacy and politics, Charlie Wilson's War. I thought mm. he was great With in Julia that. Julia Roberts, she was great in that too. Wasn't Wonderful she? film. But my absolute favourite Tom Hanks movie for his performance was uh, Punchline, which was a oh, story really? about stand-up comedy, struggling stand-up comedians. It also starred Sally Field, who was wonderful in it as well. They, you know, Sally Field ended up, I think, playing his mother, which happens a lot in Forrest Gump, which is a sort of a bit of a concern about that says a lot about women and men in um, films, and it goes back to Cary Grant. But um, no, Punchline, I reckon, was a film I really fell in love with Tom Hanks. I thought he was great in it. Can I just say a shout out to uh, Philadelphia from 1993, where he, he's the AIDS, that wonderful yeah. film. I thought it was Yeah, great. it was a good film. But and I also loved more recently Bridge of Spies, I have to say. I thought it was really good. He's been in, God, he's been in a lot of films. My husband would say Forrest Gump. He loved that film. Now, Corrie, what's your GLT? Caro, never assume your handbag is okay in a restaurant or a cafe. Right? So, as you might recall, or maybe you had left. Oh, no, you had left London. I was telling Chris and Anna this. Staying at a very nice three-star hotel in London, in a nice area, and they had a very nice cafe where we had breakfast each morning, a little buffet, and it was all very pleasant. And there were a group of Japanese business people who were at the table next to me on this particular morning, men and women, and they obviously all had a meeting because they were discussing that they had to catch the taxi and all of that sort of thing. And so I then, that was my last day I was checking out, went upstairs, came back down with my luggage, and there's a real kerfuffle at the front desk. Police, one of the ladies looking quite distraught. And what had happened was when she 
it turned out that when she was at the buffet table, you know how you go back and forward, you get your muesli, then you get your orange juice and all of that. Her bag was nicked and they had on um, CCTV uh, a vision of this guy who just quietly walked in in a, in a sports jacket off the street. He goes into the cafe. Nobody asked him, can we sit you down or anything like that? He spies the bag unattended by and everybody at the table was getting their buffet. He picks up the bag and takes it out. She had all her credit cards, her passport, her laptop, everything gone. Wow. Now, how many times have we done that, though? Left our phone and our key while we've gone and got our in orange juice? Well, just in the cafe. You know, you just think you're totally safe that there are just other, um, you know, guests are staying there and no one would nick your stuff. That's Came a- in off the street. So that's my tip to everybody. Beware. You know, just because you're in a cafe and a restaurant doesn't mean that you're safe. And also keep your bag closed. As I found out to my um, peril when um, being served a gin and tonic in India once, and um, the man serving the ice, I moved my Poured glass. it into your bag? The ice went into my bag, which unfortunately had my passport and Anna from the op shop's passport as well. And she had not wanted me to bring the passports to dinner. She wanted us to leave me to leave them in the hotel room. But I said, no, 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 we better bring our passports. And she, to this day, gets detained at airports because her passport damaged water damage. The ice from the gin and tonic. Oh, I'll get you every time. Hey, Caro, that was a very interesting show we had today. Uh, Jane's gone to sleep, but look, we'll wake her up now. Jane, wake up because we're going to say thanks to you for producing us. Uh, thank you to our potties. Please tell your friends and family to subscribe to our podcast. And, of course, you can download us or you can help your friends and family download us through any of your usual podcast applications. We love your feedback, so please send your comment, comments and tips and suggestions to our Facebook page. Don't shoot the message Facebook page or our Instagram account, which is at Don't Shoot Pod. And we tweet, Don't Shoot Pod, and you can also email us to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Don't forget the fact that our 100th episode is coming up in September. We're going to do something that will be rather fun. Thank you to Vital Smarts for supporting us. And, Cara, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger, Corrie. Hi, I'm Ann Summers. Hello, this is Laura Tingle. Hi, this is Leanne Moriarty. I'm Jen Harper. Hi, I'm Marcus Suzak. I'm David Marr. Join me on The Book Pod. I hope you can join Corey Perkin and I on The Book Pod. I would have been any one of the famous five. I just wanted to have those sorts of adventures because, believe me, nothing like that happened in suburban Caulfield. Always, no matter how abstract the issue, you have to find the narrative and you have to find characters and around those you build the story. You know, some authors take a decade to write a book. I would miss the meeting the readers. And I think also people often completely underestimate if something is easy to read, they think that means it's easy to write and it's absolutely not. It's such a skill. Subscribe to the book pod. Subscribe to the book pod. In your favourite podcast app. Wherever you listen to podcasts.